postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. A world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's Pastor Marcus here, and I want to welcome you to another episode of the Story Church Podcast, where uh, we spend time every week talking about how we can redesign Adventism for mission in our emerging post-church age. I want to take a few moments today to share with you guys um, a conversation that I've been having with my church plant uh, here in, in Perth, Australia. Uh, for those of you guys who, who are unaware, maybe it's the first time you listen to the podcast or um, you haven't followed very closely what I'm doing at the Story Church Project, I, I'm in the process right now of planting a church. And that, that's a really exciting process because, you know, there's a nucleus of people who's are whose hearts are like really open to rethinking and reimagining how we can do church effectively in a secular context. Uh, and that's, that's really cool, you know, because oftentimes when you're dealing with an established church, those conversations are very, very, very difficult to have uh, because people are so used to a particular mode of thinking and a particular cultural expression and a particular model of conduct as, as far as church uh, function is concerned that um yeah questioning those things poking those things can often um lead nowhere or sometimes it can lead to uh headaches that you don't want to have <laughs> um and so yeah like i'm in the middle of of planning a church right now and our core team has been meeting now for for some time and uh taking our time with it right it laying the foundation well and exploring you know what it means to be an Adventist church plant in a contemporary city today and the challenges that come with that, which are gargantuan and enormous. Um, so look, we've been having lots and lots of conversations and obviously this episode isn't about um, uh, summarizing all those conversations because there's so many of them. Um, who knows? Maybe when this whole experience is over, uh, I might write them all down and, and put them somewhere where people can um, be inspired by the journey we've been on because it's so far it's been it's been really really good um, although COVID has slowed us down but it's still it's been really good um, but we had a conversation this last um, this last Friday we, we we've been meeting on Friday nights on Zoom since COVID started and you know the conversation was based on this simple question uh, who gets to hear our story right that was the question and to put it in context. Uh, ever since COVID started, because we've had to change our plans a little bit, what we did was um, we've operated more as, you know, we meet on Friday nights on Zoom and, and we have more like Bible studies. Uh, we were meant to be designing our structure at this time. But um, like I said, you know, pause on that thanks to COVID. But it's okay because these conversations have been really helpful. So the first step of the conversation that we dove into was um, what are we saying? Like like that's that's the question that we were wrestling with. Like as a local Adventist church, that is aiming to connect with and minister effectively to a post-church secular audience. Um, what 
actually like what exactly are we saying like what is our story right what story are we telling and it's a really important question to answer um, and to ask and to wrestle with because for for the most part um, our churches have forgotten what it is that they're meant to be saying like right what is what is the story adventism is meant to tell and by and large, my experience as an Adventist, having grown up Adventist and being an Adventist right now, that generally is expressed in one of two ways. You either have like borderline sectarian tone deaf churches who just keep hammering doctrine, you know, three angels messages and prophecy. Um, and they're using the same language and the same frameworks and the same um, sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, um, metaphors, etc. right? That basically the same prose as we have for the last hundred years without realizing that the language that we're using and the way we're presenting these themes, it doesn't make sense to people anymore, right? It makes sense to us. And so generally speaking, what we do in these borderline sectarian churches is we're preaching our distinctive message not as a way to do mission, even though we, we lie to ourselves and we say it's mission, but really what we're doing it is as a way to satisfy our corporate ego. Oh, this is what we're meant to be saying. This is what we're meant to be preaching. We're meant to be preaching the three angels' messages and we're meant to be preaching Dan and Revelation. So we're just going to do it. No one understands what in the world we're saying, but we at least feel good about ourselves, right? We feel good that our sermons are about these distinctive Adventist conceptualizations of scripture's narrative. Like that makes us happy. Um, and and this is tragic because in, in a sense, we're doing the same thing the Pharisees were doing, right? Like we have become enamored, not, I'm, I'm not challenging our message as Adventists, but we've become enamored with a particular framework in which that message is expressed. And we haven't allowed it to enter into the collective human story that we have emerged into in, in the modern age, right? The world has changed. Society has changed. So much has changed. And so, for example, when we think of things like present truth, right? Like what is present truth today? If you go back to the 1800s in Ellen White's day, where the vast majority of the audience was already Christian or heavily influenced by Christian categories, then present truth was, you know, the Sabbath, the state of the dead, you know, the, the, all those beautiful distinctive doctrines that the rest of the churches did not have, right? The sanctuary, etc. Like present truth in that age was those distinctives because Everyone already, you know, I don't want to be theatrical here, like everyone, but <clears throat> I think you get my point. Like the vast majority, right? I'm speaking generalities here. Vast majority of people already knew Christ and they already had a semblance of Christian doctrine and understanding. It was deeply cultural, right? Like you didn't even have to go to church to have a deeply cultural understanding of what Christianity was and who Jesus was. But now we're in a completely different scenario, right? Where like a pastor I heard speaking some time ago had a guy ask him, right? In, in sort of the modern secular age, had a guy come up to him and ask him, did Jesus live before or after World War II? And it's like, the guy was being serious, right? Like for most people today, the name of Jesus is simply a cuss word. Like that's all it is. They have no conceptualization, whatever of Christianity. I, I, I worked with a guy one time, an Australian doctor, 
um, this is before I was a pastor, who asked me, like, what's a pastor? Because I told him, hey, I'm not going to be working here much longer. I'm going to be going into ministry. I'm, I, I went to school for theology and, and I'm a pastor. And he's like, what's a pastor? So I told him, it's kind of like a, a chaplain in a hospital, except I work in a church instead of a hospital. And he said, what's a chaplain? <laughs> uh, I've told this story before, right? But like these, these are, this is the age in which we're dealing, living with. And so what is present truth to that guy? Right? Is present truth to that guy that the other horn of Daniel chapter 7 and 8 is the papacy? Or is present truth to that guy the simple story of who Jesus is? Right? Because the bottom line is the world that we live in today is no longer operating according to the religio-centric categories of the previous age. And so this means that our concept and understanding of present truth has to evolve with the times, right? It has to, it has to become meaningful. It has to remain meaningful with the shifts in, in the ways in which people are relating with, you know, with reality and, and the world around them. And so, one of the first conversations that we had in this COVID season in our church plant was like, what exactly are we saying? Like, what is our message, right? Like, what story are we telling? Um, and so we took the time to sort of navigate that and, and we looked at the different stories that are told within Christianity today, you know, the Calvinist story, the Arminian story, um, and then just wrestled with, you know, where does Adventism fit into this continuum? And are we, do we have something eccentric to say that no one else is saying, something worth saying? Or are we simply saying the same thing everybody else is saying but with slightly different um you know metaphors or archetypes and so we wrestled with that and you know the bottom line was and for those of you who've read my book um weirdvolution adventism for a post-church generation um you'd know that i'm definitely on the side that adventism has something eccentric to say right like we've got something to say that that no one else is really saying um, and so we have to wrestle with that in 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 a meaningful way, right? Not not a sectarian sort of big headed. Look at us, we're Adventists, we're better than everyone else. Like that is not my jam at all. That kind of stuff makes me want to puke. Um, but it's it's definitely if you if you wrestle with it with a meaningful way, right? In in an existential way, you'll find that hey, there is actually something eccentric here that is worth communicating to the world. And so. Once we, once we kind of wrestled with that and came to this basic conclusion of, you know, what it is we're saying to the world, the next question is, who gets to hear it, right? Who gets to hear this story? And now, why is that question important? It's a super important question because every Seventh-day Adventist will tell you, like any, anyone you speak to, if you say, who gets to hear this story, their answer will be everyone, right? The whole world, all of humanity. Like, it doesn't matter what your race is, your culture, your generation, um, your, your class, this story is for everyone. And, and we say that, but do we really mean it? So let me give you guys an example to, to set the foundation here. And then I want to read two passages um, from Matthew and John about when Jesus cleansed the temple, because those are the passages that we um, interacted with on Friday night and, and had this conversation over. But, but I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine a church that has a big giant billboard at the front. And on that billboard, it says, everyone welcome, right? Come as you are. And everybody in the church believes the same thing. Everyone welcome, come as you are. However, when you get to the front door of the church, you discover that the door, the entrance to the church is only five feet high. And when you get inside the church, you discover that all the chairs are designed for people who are short. And when you walk through the corridors of the church, the corridors themselves are only about five feet high. And the bathroom stalls are designed to accommodate people who are that height and, and so on and so forth. 
Now on the billboard, it says everyone is welcome and everyone in the church believes it. But the way the church itself is structured says something else. The way the church itself is structured says everyone's welcome here. But if you really want to belong, you've got to contort yourself to enter in. So if you are seven feet tall and when you get to the front entrance, you got to contort yourself and bend yourself and get in. And then the entire time that you're in here, you have to hunch over and you have to sit on these uncomfortable chairs that aren't designed for you. And even using the bathroom is uncomfortable, right? But you're welcome. We want you here, right? We love that you're here. We're so happy that you're here, even though the structure of our church isn't really designed for you. Now, Suppose a bodybuilder, a big giant bodybuilder comes to your church, right? He would be awfully uncomfortable the entire time. Um, and eventually it would sink in that even though the church isn't against him, it's also not designed for him. It's not designed with him in mind. The church is designed with a particular kind of person in mind. And that particular kind of person is a person who is less or, or equal to five feet tall. Anyone else you're totally welcome, but you're never fully going to fit in. Now, this is an illustration, obviously, and illustrations are pale. But the point that I'm making is that most of our churches are designed this way, right? Like everyone is welcome and we believe it fully. But the way we're designed, the way we're structured, the way we function is only really designed to minister to a certain kind of person, right? We, we've created this box, so to speak. And that box basically says, if you are, and I'm just going to be super frank here, and I can do it because I'm a pastor and I see this stuff all the time, all right? I've seen it since I was a kid. Um, if you are a middle-class person who is, who is you know, educated and, and don't have too many vices, you can join our church and you can assimilate into our culture. We might have to shave off a few edges, but for the most part, you fit in. But if you're a postmodern, if you are a thug, if you are a drug addict, right? If you come from a walk of life that is unchurched, post-church, post-Christianity, skeptical, atheistic, whatever it might be, you are totally welcome here. But guess what? We're not really designed to facilitate your spiritual journey. We're designed to facilitate the spiritual journey of people who show up who are kind of already like us, who don't have too many vices that can easily and quickly assimilate into our way of life and get baptized and become an upstanding member who represents everything we represent. But if you come to our church and you got meth addiction or alcohol, you know, and, and you've got this crazy past and you're covered in tattoos and all that stuff, it's like, you know what? We love it that you're here, but you're always going to be uncomfortable because this isn't really designed with you in mind. And so this is where I went to, um, this is where our church plant, we, we went to this story in the book of John chapter two, verse 13. Uh, I'm just going to read verse 13 to uh, 16. And then the same story, like you get another version of it in Matthew 21, and I'll read it there. And it says this, uh, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their temples or their tables. Sorry. And he told them who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
Now, when we get to Matthew, <clears throat> we see this a different angle offered here. This is Matthew chapter 21, verse 12 I'm reading from. And it says this, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. And the blind, verse 14, and lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Now, here's the thing. There's, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in this story. You know, it's centered on the temple, right? It's centered on, on essentially what in scripture, you know, the theme of sanctuary in scripture. Um, and even though this temple isn't something that God had asked to be built, it still to some degree carries the significance that the temple was meant to carry in the psychology of the Israelite community. And, and that is that the temple represents God's desire to be with people, right? God's desire to dwell with us, to hang out with us, to, to be with us, right? In friendship, um, a historical God, a present God who's here. That's what the sanctuary in scripture always represents, right? It represents God's desire to be with people. This is why the original sanctuary was movable, Right, because wherever the people moved, the sanctuary would move with them. This is God's desire to dwell, to live with people. And I can go on about that for forever because it's such a cool theme. But here's the thing. When, when we get to the story, what we find is that the temple has become something else. Right, it's become a place of commerce, right? But it's not any type of commerce. This is religious commerce. They are selling lambs and doves and all the sacrificial things there. And likely what's going on in this scenario is that when people traveled from, you know, one part of the country to the temple to offer their sacrifices, it was really inconvenient to you know come with all these animals and so it was a lot easier to go to the temple without the animals and just be able to buy them right then and there right um and so you would purchase the animal right then and there and then you could do your sacrifice and uh, that was the general idea but this had become it had become a currency it had become a monopoly right and essentially what's going on here is that the animals that are being sold at the temple are being sold at these exorbitant prices. There's a profiteering that's taking place, right? There's, there's a religious um, profiteering. And these money changers appear in some way, shape, or form to be benefiting the religious establishment of the age. And it's one of the reasons why the Pharisees could have been upset that Jesus got rid of the money changers, right? It's like, hey, that was actually helping us out. You know, it was helping out financially with the temple, etc. And you can go on and on about that. But the bottom line, the point that I want to highlight here is that there is a sense in which the gospel or the beauty of the temple had been commodified, right? It had become a consumer-driven product. And the tragedy of this, the tragedy, the real tragedy we see in verse 14, we don't see this in John, but we see it in Matthew in verse 14, is that the blind and the lame came to Jesus after he got rid of all the other people who were there. But then something interesting happens after in verse 15. It says, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, the priests were indignant. 
And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yeah, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So Jesus cleanses the temple of this commodification, this religious sale that's taken place. And when he does that, all the misfits show up. All the people who weren't able to get into the temple show up and they are shouting, right? And they are singing. They're having a good time. They're praising him. And when the religious leaders see this, it ticks them off. So there's a lot of areas in which we we, we dialogued and, and, and talked about this particular story, the, the ways in which it impacts or, or translates to our modern day church culture today, because there's a lot of bits and pieces that do. But there's one central theme that uh, I, I really wanted to call the team's attention on and that I want to share with you guys today. And the theme is this. When Jesus first arrives at the temple, there is an audience there. It is the audience that can easily benefit from the commodification of the gospel, right? The audience is there. The sailors are there. The merchants are there. The people with the money are there. The religious leaders are there. And they fit this scenario really well. But the tragedy of the scenario is that it excludes the poor, the blind, the lame, the children. It excludes them, right? And so, but here's the thing, like, even though it excludes them, like, there, there, there isn't like a bouncer standing at the gate saying, no, sorry, you're blind, go away, right? There, there isn't, you know, like a Roman legion standing there um, saying, hey, you, you, you look paralyzed, you're, no, go away, like, this is, this is only for a certain class of people. No, there's no, it's not an active exclusion of the misfit. It's a passive exclusion. In other words, the temple currency... Um, the flow, the culture of the temple, the system has become a kind of thing that passively excludes a certain kind of person. And again, the difference between an active and a passive exclusion is there's no one standing at the door saying you don't belong here. But there is a theme, a mood that has been created in the temple that automatically tells people, a certain class of people, you don't belong here. And so once this mood is in motion and you walk into the temple and you can see who benefits, who, who, who fits in, and you know that you don't fit that mold, then you know, hey, I don't fit in here. I don't belong here. It's, it's kind of like a sociological barrier as opposed to, to a physical one. And so when Jesus gets rid of the merchants, when he gets rid of this sociological barrier, all of a sudden, the people who didn't fit in before now fit in. Now they come into the temple, right? Now the blind and the lame come to the temple and he heals them. Now the children come in and start singing songs of praise and the religious leaders are ticked off. So here's the thing that happens in the story. At the beginning of the story, there is an in-crowd and there is an out-crowd. The in-crowd are the merchants and the religious leaders who profit from the merchants. The out-crowd are the blind, the lame, and the kids. Toward the end of the story, you actually have the same exact thing happening. You have an in-crowd and you have an out-crowd. The in-crowd at the end of the story is the blind and the lame and the kids. The outcrowd at the end of the story is the religious and the merchants. Now, why is this so important? Because 
There is always going to be an in crowd and there is always going to be an out crowd. The question that you have to resolve as a local Seventh-day Adventist church with a passion for your city is, who is the in crowd? Because there's always going to be an in crowd and there's always going to be an out crowd. But the tragedy is that many of us, our in crowd, the crowd the crowd for which we orient all of our energies and focus and culture and style and everything that we do, we orient it to this in crowd. The people that we are working for the most are the religious. They are our in crowd. We want to engineer a church style and church structure and church culture that makes the religious people happy. And when you engineer that kind of scenario, when your focus is, let me make the church folk happy, what you do is you automatically create a culture that passively excludes anyone who isn't already religious. And so when we get to Jesus and he shows up, he gets rid of these charlatans. And all of a sudden there's a new in crowd. And the new in crowd are the blind and the lame and the kids. But here's the thing. When they become the in crowd, all of a sudden the religious are the out crowd. Now here's the practical reality to that. The uncomfortable practical reality is that there will always be an in crowd and an out crowd. Now, you don't have to determine who your out crowd is. That's none of your business, right? Like, we, we should never do that. But we do have to decide, who are we here for? Who gets to hear our story? Who are we designing our ministry? Who are we pouring our energy? All of that. Like, who gets to hear the story? Because if your church is like any other church that is designed to pacify the sensibilities of the religious, then I guarantee you, you will create a culture, you will engineer a culture that passively excludes anyone who's not already religious. I've seen it for years. People come to church who aren't religious, who are secular, who weren't brought up with the traditions and all that stuff. And, and they come and they're like, they last for a few months and then they leave. And I've talked to many of them. Why don't you stay? What's going on? And they're thirsty for God and they love God and they want to follow God more and they're searching for God. But the answer is always the same. This particular local church, I just, you know, I just don't fit in. And so I've heard people say to me in reply, they say, oh, they must not really have wanted to find God. And I'm like, wait a minute, time out. They haven't given up on searching for God. They've just decided your church ain't the place where they're going to find them. Right? And so we cannot like sort of pacify ourselves by saying, oh, if they were really serious, they would have stayed. No, they're serious and they're still searching and they're going to keep searching. It's just not with you. Why? Because you are more interested in pacifying the sensibilities of the religious than you are in creating an environment that is meaningful for the blind, the lame, and the spiritual children. And you can't do both, right? You can't create an environment that is designed to make religious folk happy and at the same time designed to minister to the needs of those who are lost. Jesus exemplified this, right? Jesus is like, if, you, if you're ever going to pattern yourself after anyone, Jesus is it, right? Like Jesus is the perfect son of God. Like you got to pattern yourself after him. You got to pattern your church after him. And, and, and what was it about Jesus that is really compelling in this conversation. It's the fact that Jesus attracted the irreligious. He did have some religious people that connected with him, 
but they were sincere religious people, right? Generally speaking, when I'm using the phrase religious, I'm talking about people who are more concerned with policies than people, programs than relationships, um, standards and rules and regulations than, than intimacy with others, right? This is essentially the pharisaical mode of being. And so Jesus, you see, is always attracting the non-religious and repelling the religious. And this is the tragedy of so many local Adventist churches that I've been to is we do the opposite. We attract the religious and we repel the non-religious. Timothy Keller, one of the, one of the ladies in my group sent this to, to our group the day after we, we had this conversation. It was just so well. It's from one of Timothy Keller's books. I don't know which book, um, but the quote is here. Uh, I wonder if she said in the message. No, no, she didn't mention which book it's from. Um, but I'm sure if you search around, uh, you, you'll find what book it's from. But this is what Timothy Keller said in one of his books. I quote, Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted do not bother coming to our churches, even our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw buttoned-down, moralistic people. The licentious and liberated or the broken and marginal avoid church. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. End quote. Man, that is like so powerful, you guys. So powerful, right? And and so we decided as a local church, you know, as a church that will soon be launching, let's have this conversation. Like, who gets to hear our story? And when it comes to the main question, right? Like, this is kind of what I titled this podcast episode after. The number one reason why secular people don't like your church. When it when it comes to that statement or that question, it's it's not because your music is outdated and it's 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 not because of those external things that we often, you know, banter on about. The reason why secular people don't like your church is because your church isn't designed to minister meaningfully to them. They are not in your thought process. They are not in your planning. They are not in your prayers. Your main concern as a local Seventh-day Adventist church, and I say this about most local Seventh-day Adventist churches I've ever been to, your main concern is how do we make a program or system that we are happy with? How do we make a structure that we are content with? And you know that because... Even if you try and change something in church, people will pour through the Bible and, and the writings of Ellen White to find any bit of evidence to prove that you shouldn't change that tiny thing you want to change. But what was the last time those same people put that same level of energy into understanding the culture that they live in today? What was the last time they poured through the books to try and find out how do people think today? How do we minister effectively to them? How do we reach them? How do we love them? How do we speak their language, right? We are willing to put in the hard yard when it comes to preserving the things we think are important, but we're not willing to put in the hard yard when it comes to understanding the people God has called us to reach. Our churches do not actively exclude anyone we passively exclude them. We create systems, structures, and cultures that communicate 
to people who are visiting, this is not for you. Now, some people might reply to that and say, well, Pastor Marcus, it shouldn't be for the religious and it shouldn't be for the secular either. Our churches should be for God. Everything we do should be designed to please God, not religious people, not secular people, just God. And look, man, I completely and totally agree. But the problem is this. How do you define please God? For most people, pleasing God is defined by what they like. Oh, we please God by doing the things religious people like. We please God by singing the songs religious people like. We please God by doing, by, by setting up structures and systems, which by the way, he never ever commanded. But we set them up to make ourselves happy and that makes God happy. I don't think so. Because when I look at scripture, what I see is a God who is pleased most by when his people lay down their very lives for the salvation of others. And if God is calling you to lay down your life for the salvation of another person, do you really think he doesn't expect you to also lay down your preferences, lay down your traditions, lay down your comfort zones, lay down the things you think are important, the things that make you happy for the salvation of others. If he's calling for your life, he's calling for your everything. And it's so much easier to speak poetically, right? It's so much easier to speak poetically and say, God wants us to give our lives to him. But when it comes down to the practical nitty gritty of what that means, that's where we stumble. Because poetry is a lot easier than practice. Which is why I've often said to myself, I don't know if I've ever said it to any of you or ever said this in the podcast, but one of the themes that I've often had sort of bounce around in my head is, or, or a quote that often bounces around in my head is, all the people said amen until it was time to do the work. Right? It's easy to say amen. It's easy to say hallelujah. It's easy to say preach it, preacher. But when it comes time to doing the work, to letting go of the things that you think are important in order to reach a moribund and lost generation inundated by perspectives of secularism and consumerism and, and the commodification of life and being and postmodernism and the absurdity of a life lived in the pursuit of meaning in the context of a universe that mocks that pursuit, how many of us understand that? How many of you listening to this episode actually have any idea what I just said? And you've taken the time to unravel it and understand it and appreciate it and then find ways to interact meaningfully with it. I can go on and on, guys, but I think I've made my point. The number one reason why secular people don't like your church is because your church passively excludes them. It's not designed to love on them, to minister to them, to take them from where they are to where God wants them to be. I had an experience some years ago with a guy who was coming to our church, and this isn't an isolated experience. I'm actually still have the experience right now with a few other secular guys that I've been ministering to over the last few years. And the experience revolved around this guy's addiction to cigarettes and he wanted to quit smoking. And people at the church would tell him, hey, you know, if you want to be baptized, um, you got to quit smoking. But you know what? 
There wasn't a single addiction recovery program in that church. There wasn't a single resource that they could give this guy who was sincerely thirsting for a relationship with God and his church. There was nothing that they could offer him to help him navigate his addiction. All they would tell him was, if you want to be baptized, you got to stop smoking because the church doesn't endorse that. See, that is a system that is designed for people who don't struggle with smoking because they can come to your church, they can be a part of your church, and when they read, oh, you know, the Bible, no smoking, health message, oh, yeah, cool, okay, no problem. All right, cool, you're ready for baptism. Just, you know, maybe stop eating the pork, and yeah, that's not a big deal. All right, cool, you're ready for baptism. But when someone really has an addiction, it's like, yeah, you can't be baptized until you stop this, but we're not going to help you stop either because what's the underlying message there? We're not really designed for people like you. That's why secular people don't like your church. That's why secular people don't like my church because we're not really designed for them. So I want to challenge Adventism today and I want to challenge you wherever you are, whether you're a pastor, a lay leader, whatever it might be. I, I can't stand that word lay. I think it's filled with lots of faulty ideas, but that's a separate podcast episode. But if look, if you're a member of the body of Christ, if you belong to the priest of all believers, then I really want to encourage you to think about this and to wrestle with this. How can we redesign our churches with this one question? Who gets to hear our story? You ask that simple question and then you look at your structures, your systems, your culture, and you think of how can we redesign this to be a meaningful discipleship experience for people who are not like us. I think the moment we ask that question, wrestle with it, and begin to develop new ways of doing church with that idea at the center, I think that's the moment we'll start to see a whole different experience for people who are searching for God in the modern age. Anyways, guys, thank you for taking the time to listen to me. I'm, I'm going to stop there because I, like, I could keep going and going and going. And um, I almost feel like this was just meant to be a little bit of a, hey, this is what we're up to at our church plant. And it kind of turned into a sermon. So <laughs> my bad, guys, my bad. But I hope it was meaningful either way and um, that it give you something to, to wrestle with as you seek to redesign Adventism for mission. Take care and God bless. Mm-hmm.